Welcome to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, sitting here, as always, with Arthur Black. Hello, hello. And today we've got a great guest uh, visiting us from Chicago, Jay Schrader. How's it going? Doing well. Uh, Jay is a former partner at uh, Mescaleria de las Flores. You worked previously with Rick Bayless at Frontera Grill, Tupelo Bampo, etc. So we're talking mezcal today. Love it. You just yeah. got back from Mexico, right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, yeah. I was down in Jalisco, did some tequila stuff, and did some ricea stuff as well. Ricea. Uh, there's probably only like one brand of ricea, uh, ricea that's available in the States as of right now, right? Yes, Venenosa, yeah. And that's, I, I got to um, hang out with Esteban, who's uh, the kind of mastermind behind Venenosa. Right. He's the gentleman who, who started working with these producers, put it together into a brand, linked up with some other folks, and started bringing it in. So we got to see two of their producers. All right, so I'm just going to go out there. Uh, we're going to have to rein it in today because um, anyone who's listened to this podcast has heard how many times I've said Mezcal before. Uh, we're finally talking about Mezcal, and I, I really feel like the little dude from the Lego movie who's like, Starship, 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 <laughs> except it's Mezcal, Mezcal, Mezcal. We um, have been putting this one off for a while because we've been waiting to get the right guest. We've, you know, yeah, like, and I, I think we were just going to like... You and I were just going to rock out a Mezcal thing, but now we've got Jay here, which is awesome. No, it was, it was um, perfect. So, uh, wow, I mean, where to start? Well, um, we always start with the exact same place. Oh, so, what yeah, do you mean, where, thank do, you where, for where reminding do we start? Me. Uh, Jay, what did you drink last night? What did I drink last night? I was drinking a very fine bourbon whiskey. Uh, I had some Evan Williams Black Label last evening. That's funny. I was, uh, I was drinking Evan Williams Bottled and Bond last, okay. last night. Yeah. All right. I only keep two bourbons. Uh, on the shelf at home, both bottle and bond, and yeah, I, I'm usually drinking rum. But last night I was mixing up a little bit. Arthur, wine. Of Actually, course. I had some leftover uh, samples from the interview we did with Sherry, so I was drinking Rutherford Ranch Cabernet 2012. It's good. Yeah, that was that was really beautiful. Yeah, I liked it a lot. It actually had a lot of reach to it, a lot of depth, and it's it's priced appropriately. And I can't always say that about Napa Valley wines. That's so true. much. Yeah. And uh, we've also uh, got a special announcement here today. Uh, Arthur turns 40 tomorrow. Oh, fuck you, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> He's really excited about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thrilled. It's so great. Feel free to uh, send all those gifts to uh, care of Shift Drink Podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to give you a fucking yeah. yard sign. So I know where you live. I'm going to get a yard sign for you tomorrow. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I have a little inflatable number, one of those dancing oh, yeah. guys. What else could you hook up? I don't uh, send me a... a Dancing birthday wish gram with a gorilla yeah. or something. <laughs> I don't know what they're called. Your, All right, so your gift is sitting on the table right there with those. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Not available anywhere. <laughs> mezcals that Jay was kind enough to bring with him. So we're at we're at La Margarita, which is in Fountain Square. Uh, John Carlos was generous enough to open up the space for us to record here, and we get here, and not only did Jay bring a few bottles of mezcal, but there are like eight other bottles of mezcal on the table waiting for us. So. Apparently, it's a communal beverage. Um, we started off talking uh, and mentioned Racia, because um, Jay was just down in Mexico. There are a number of different spirits that come out of Mexico, and everyone's heard of tequila, of course. Ah. Um, although, Go America, we've been a leading consumer of tequila since 2007. America! <laughs> We're talking about Mezcal today, and I'm sure we'll jump off topic and talk about some other things. But mezcal is probably the second most famous spirit coming out of uh, out of Mexico. Ricea is another one. There's about a half dozen more: Sotol, Bacanora. These things that people really haven't heard about are just starting to kind of come into this country. But uh, mezcal has been a thing. It's it's huge within the bartending community. 
Um, it, to me, is one of the most beautiful beverages on the planet, and hands down, the most laboriously crafted beverage. Um, and I would argue that too. I was blue in the face. It's really starting to kind of pick up steam as well. I mean, you said you know it's been around. It has been around, but I mean, I, I think that's starting to get more popularity recently. I mean, places like uh, Las Flores and like the, the, the Mezcal program that you guys have had in Chicago uh, at Rick Bayless's restaurants, I mean, that's not something that I'm sure was uh, easily accepted right off the bat when you guys opened up in the beginning. Yeah, it wasn't easily accepted, and it wasn't, it wasn't readily available. I remember in 2010, I started at Mercadito uh, in Chicago, and the only mezcales that we had available on the market, for the most part, were one single brand, uh, probably the most well-known, which is Del Maguey. Uh, that's really all we had, is their, their classic lineup of uh, Espadín mezcales from different towns. Uh, so all kind of apples to apples, the same thing, but kind of showing you different places and different methods. So that's all we had. Uh, I just took a sip of mezcal. And yeah. It's like... Uh, Wakes you up. Well, um, so have you, either of you guys seen uh, Blade 2, the movie? <laughs> all right, so yeah, but my favorite reference to Blade 2 is in what was the uh, in Deadpool. It's like, have fun at your midnight showing of Blade 2. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's awesome, uh, Deadpool. But in Blade 2, they capture one of the new vampires, right? And they break open his chest cavity. And they take like a drop of blood and they put it on like the heart or at least the casing of the heart and it starts going like freaking out and comes alive. That's kind of what my body's doing right now. I just got excited. By tasting a little <laughs> bit of uh, a mezcal. So um, before we go too far, uh, you know, Jay, what? there's a lot of people out there, you know, and we encounter this a lot when we, with new hires in our restaurants. I mean, they don't really understand what mezcal is. Sure. Um, and just even apart from explaining uh, you know tequila and that but like I mean if you had to explain mezcal to one of your guests coming in which you did for <laughs> the last decade of your life yeah. or more um, you know I mean what's what's your rundown how would you explain that to someone so you, I mean it gets really confusing really fast but to make it simple any any spirit any spirit made out of agave as a source is in the mezcal tradition so the law has come into it recently and changed that up a little bit. Uh, it's like um, it's like sparkling wine and champagne. If all of a sudden champagne makes a, a denomination of origin, you can only call sparkling wine from champagne champagne. If you were making it across the street from where they said you could make it, you can't call it champagne anymore. You have to call it something else. I like so, champagne. Oh, yes, you do. We have seen a lot of that happen in the world of agave spirits, um, and that's where it gets confusing, but the mezcal tradition is broad. Uh, tequila evolved out of the mezcal tradition, uh, basically using really rustic ways to take agaves, which are big, beautiful, uh, very difficult to work with desert plants and uh, turn them into spirits. Yeah, agaves, I think a lot of people have seen um, illustrations of agaves of like, you know, that's one thing you can find in a lot of supermarkets, no matter where you are in the U.S., is a lot of uh, agave nectar yeah. for sweetening. And it has usually like a little hand-drawn yeah. uh, illustration of agave on, on the label. And I, I don't think people realize how massive these plants really can get and how long it takes to get to maturity before you can really start using the... Uh, it's like a giant pineapple, really, on the top of this thing. I mean, it's like it looks like a, a giant aloe vera plant with a giant pineapple in the middle. Yeah. Uh, it's, just a, it's a very strange-looking plant, but there's tons of varieties that can be used in mezcal, right? They're so awesome. I mean, they're, they're not annuals. Like you said, they take a long time to mature. It's not like grapes. You know, every year you get a harvest. They're monocarpic, so, you know, they reproduce once and done, gone. Yep. So, to, you know, I'm, I'm sure Jay can, can speak to this, that having... 
walked around fields of agaves, um, wild or orchards, and you just you're talking to somebody, and they're like, "Yeah, I've been waiting on this to to be mature for 15 years, and we're going to harvest it in a couple of weeks." I mean, it's a very spiritual plant. Um, not that I'm I've had many out of body experiences while drinking <laughs> mezcal or tequila. Of course, I have with little dancing Zopatec tribe warriors. They are the cloud people. How long has agave been uh, being consumed? Uh, That's by- a really good question. So human beings probably came to the New World about ten to 12,000 years ago. So you got to give a little bit of a buffer for people to really figure out, number one, to get to where everyone spread to in the New World, and then for people to kind of figure out how to start working with these plants. Because they're, they're pretty, pretty difficult to work with if you don't know what you're doing. Once you understand a plant, how it works, how to not run afoul of its defenses and stuff like that, uh, it's pretty easy. I'd say about 8,000 years. Yeah, I've seen that. Jay's um, talking about the Paleo-Indian era, guys. This is when people, you know, started coming to North America. Over and the they've actually Strait. found, I, I've read in the past that uh, they've actually found, uh, like, agave fibers with uh, with people up to 8,000 years ago. Yeah, so. there's some stuff, when you talk about before uh, Christopher Columbus came over and that, that whole debacle happened, uh, if you talk about what people, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. downhill from there. Everything debacle. got fucked up. Fucking uh, Chris. So if, if you talk about before that, there are certain things that we know for sure that Mesoamericans did. Mesoamericans definitely took agaves, cut them, took the pinas, roasted them underground, and ate them. They used them for food. Mesoamericans also definitely in some capacity fermented them. You have, a, you have a pottery shards that have fermented agave residue on them that date back thousands of years. So people knew how to ferment it and make pulque. Pulque is a little bit different in terms of how you make it, but the, the, the same kind of ideas are there. Uh, the missing link and the thing that people argue about all the time is whether distillation happened before the Spaniards came. It definitely happened before the Spaniards I came. I definitely yeah. think it didn't. Yeah. But that's, that's, <laughs> it's, a really, it's an opinion question. It's, it's, it's all about trying to find that conclusive evidence that shows... I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic. I'm a born skeptic. I want to believe, though. I do. No, I've I've seen stills that are like ninth century stills that are they've been carbon dated, um, makeshift stills with like gourds and shit that go back 500 years before the Spaniards came over. So I'm I'm a firm believer that if something can be made in alcohol, people will figure it out. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then if humans have proven anything, we can turn it oh, into alcohol. Oh yeah, right. we can oh, drink yeah. it. Oh yeah. Um, so the Spaniards definitely like in mass brought over the art of distillation and helped you know sort of expedite the proliferation of. of distillation but I totally believe especially if you hang out with some mescaleros that are, are palenqueros that are doing the clay pot distillation and you see this it's like yeah they could be doing this for a very very long time right yeah so that, which is what that I'm thinking right to now the, to a really good question um, I mean so exactly how do we get from this giant pine cone looking pina and these things are big I mean they can how much do they weigh Oh gosh, uh, it depends. On they average, can get upwards, I guess, depending on the on subspecies. On average, uh, eighty kilograms. That's ridiculous. So we're we're, we're in America, Jay. Uh, what is <laughs> Metric that? Metric system. Uh, yeah. Uh, Somebody get a converter out. One hundred and twenty pounds. One hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. But, so what's the process? Pounds. I mean, you've got this thing. What do you do with it? How do, how does it make it from that into what's in our glass now? Like. So you have to cook it. Um, the one thing that's tricky about using an agave to make a, make a spirit is that the types of sugars in agave are unique to agave. So you've got, on one end, you've got um, simple sugars, like cane sugar. You're going to make rum, you squeeze the cane, you have sugar, yeast can do its thing, you're done. 
uh, you have potatoes, you have grain, you have anything else. You've got these complex carbohydrates, so the sugar's all locked up really tight, and you have to do something to that. In the case of potatoes, you've got to cook them real long, real slow, basically pressure cook them until the sugar, those carbs fall apart into sugar. Uh, with grain, you have to malt it, right? So agaves are made out of a type of sugar called fructans, and they're basically just a bunch of fructose molecules all stuck together. And the nice thing about those, number one for the plant, if you eat them, you're going to get sick. You can't, human beings can't digest those, animals can't digest those. It's a really good defense mechanism. But for us, if we're going to make booze out of it, all you have to do is heat them up and they fall apart. So if you bury the agave underground, um, which is basically just a really rudimentary oven, all you're doing is digging a pit because the earth is an insulator. You're lining it with stones, you're putting coals in it. Then you're piling it full of agave pinas, these big pineapple-looking hearts of the agave. Uh, and then you cover them up and you let them roast for a good three days. And all those uh, kind of very non-complex starches start to fall apart into simple sugars. So after you've got your roasted agave, it moves on to a crush? Is it? Is you it? have to mill it somehow. So okay. then you've still got all these fibers. Agaves are really, really crazy. And I'm a huge dork about it. I grow agaves at home. I hang out at the Garfield <laughs> In Park Illinois? Yeah. I got a little window box that I built out, and I got these little agaves growing, and I'm growing them from seed. They, you have to make sure they get enough light, and you have to keep them warm enough. So, Otherwise, uh, they're good. Have you named them? Not yet. I'm really surprised. They're not Jay. old enough to be named. <laughs> yeah, I, I, have to, I have to. It's like uh, it's like Tom Cruise. You gotta you gotta you gotta wait <laughs> until like they're Tom old enough Cruise. that it speaks to me, and I can I can determine what it needs its name. You're gonna be kicked out of the mezcal community by saying that. It's like, what? oh no, isn't it's he like the one Tom who, Cruise. Isn't he the, the actor who like refused to name his kid for like three weeks or something so what? that he could figure out the kid's I personality? Uh, You're probably waiting put down, for the put People Magazine down. Scientology to fucking name his child for him. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Um, so yeah, after they're roasted and, and, and crushed, then you, you move on in the process. Yeah, so you, you crush your agave. There's a couple different ways to do it. You either do it by hand, which is like the worst job that's ever existed. You have these big, giant wooden bats, and you put the pieces of agave down in a, in a wooden trough or a, a stone trough, and you sit there and wail on them for, you know, eight hours a day. Yeah, like that's um, how this one's done. Uh, Vago, TRAs. TRA. I, I, last time I was down in Oaxaca, I visited TRA, and it was phenomenal. They weren't producing because they were all winding down for a big wedding uh, in another town for one of their other palanqueros, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say it's an amazing. Well, it is an amazing place, but like when you say amazing place in the beverage world, like usually talking like a big winery or a big distillery, and this is just a farm. It, there's a shack, and that's about it. To qualify as a high-tech mezcal distillery, it would be good to have a roof. If you have a roof, you're in the realm of high tech. If you have a concrete floor, you're definitely very high tech. Oh, so. and he he put in a roof over his uh, yep. palenque uh, a few years ago after he he got his first paycheck from um, from Judah. Um, great experience. God damn, I was in such rough shape when I was there, man. I heard the stories. Oh, God. oh no, what happened? Well, I mean, we had a late night, and we get a late night, right? A late night, and you know, it takes several hours to to get to his um, palanquero. And um, I, I picked up his big ass like mallet, which probably weighed about 35 pounds or so, and I had somebody take a picture uh, of me holding the mallet with a big smile on my face. But I've never really showed it to anybody because it, it's probably one of the most incriminating pictures I've ever had taken of me. Like, <laughs> really? Well, if you really? Look, well, <laughs> never mind. Ed probably has some, some other pictures. I've got but I've got blackmail stuff. If you if you ever saw that that picture of Nick Nolte when he was in like a lineup when he got arrested. 
like I make him look real good. You know, <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it looks like I got like a black eye. Maybe I did. I don't know. It All was, I was told by um, it was a rough day. I think it was um, God. Who did tell me? Curtis, or maybe it was. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know. Just like, just make sure I get on the plane. <laughs> That's all I said. Like, oh man, because they were like, oh, you're going down to Miami with Arthur. Be, be careful. I was like, I think we can hang. Uh, all right. Memories. So we've got this. We've got this fermenting. We've got crushed agave. You know, we got to take that agave. Now you said it was really laborious, and you mean it. Like, you, so you've got all these crushed uh, agave fibers with all the sugar still pretty much stuck to them. And in tequila, at this point, they would just wash those fibers off, take yeah. the liquid off, and, and roll with the liquid. Uh, with mezcal, just give you have them to a rinse, move, basically. Yeah, you have to move the agave fibers over to the fermenter because almost everybody. I've never seen anybody who doesn't ferment with the fibers. So you have to do it in buckets, and then you fill the fermenter up. And you let nature take its course. It's the only spirit that I know of that is wild fermented by Aurora. Uh, Ed's probably going to say rum. Um, there's, there's no, some, there's not. Well, I'm off the top of my head. Producers I mean, well, they're, at least, they, they are using wild. No, don't you? At least starting with ambient yeast. I don't want to say yes, right? So, But they're augmenting with right. cultivated yeast. So um, it's not 100%. Um, and I will stand corrected if Ben Jones is listening and he wants to call in and... So, uh, this is really, really important, um, just to drive home uh, the importance of the fibers macerating with the fermenting um, agua miel, the honey water. Like, literally tequila, they will shred their agave, they spray them with water, and then that which leaches out, they take that and that that gets goes into the fermenter. Um, And they inoculate yeast and go on from there. Like, so, with uh, mezcal, they're literally taking batch by batch of these crushed agave, whether they're done with a tahona, a traditional stone wheel, whether they're done with bats or mallets or whatever, and then they put them in these these big uh, tanks. Are Tina? Is that it? Tina, yeah. Yeah, so they're probably about 500 liter capacity. Oftentimes it's like the bored out ass end of an oak tree or something like that that's been on the family property for 90 years. And they don't add any more than, say, 10% uh, by volume water into this just gruel. I mean, it just looks like really thick stew as opposed to just this watery kind of beerish kind of thing that they make tequila out of um and that's not where like the laborious nature doesn't end there i mean there's so much that goes into to these things um what happens next ah we got to go to the still goes to the still gotta go to the still where you got the you're, you're generally speaking you're still taking the fibers and moving them over so since you still have the fibers from the fermentation you're again you're not able to use a pump you're not able to use any sort of mechanized means. You have dudes with buckets taking all those 500,000, 1,200 liters of um, your fermented agave, your tapas. It sounds like a band. Over. Dudes uh, with buckets. Dudes with buckets. That just sounds like a shit job. <laughs> it's, yeah. But, you know, I, it is. I mean, when you said it's it's low tech, I mean, you weren't kidding. I mean, this is, they're still making mezcal with thousand-year-old technology. No, if you can no call it technology. I guess it was at one point, you know, technology. Check out this mule I got. Like, the, yeah. ooh. the smallest distillery like I've been to elsewhere in the world, whether it's like Grower Cham- or Grower Champagne, Grower Cognac or whatever, they still have electricity. You know, they still have indoor plumbing. You're very much on the actual grid. Yeah. 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 Uh, no. No. I, I was at um, one palanquero, and just like it was probably twelve o'clock, um, and. I, there was no doubt in my mind the people working there had worked more that day than I have my entire fucking life. Um, and I'm sitting there like, my space phone won't work. You know, I'm right. off the grid. You got any Wi-Fi? 
<laughs> Weefy, what's your Weefy code? Come on, man. So it's it's an amazing experience. So we go to a still, and not even there's probably about four thousand mescaleros in Oaxaca, which is the state of primary um, mezcal sourcing, uh, just like Jalisco is for tequila. But that doesn't mean that there's four thousand distilleries. I mean, like most mescaleros don't actually own a still, right? It, I would say that's generally true. It's it's tough because it, there are single proprietor spots and there are places that are like vast communal palenques as well. Uh, San Miguel de Ajutla uh, and the dead south of Oaxaca, um, they're a really big communally producing town. So you've got a bunch of producers. In fact, there's a type of uh, brand of mezcal called Banez. And Banez is made by 52 different producers, all pretty much using the same sets of equipment. So yeah. everyone kind of pitches in and, and does their part and... and you know. So Jay and I have both said um, palenque a couple of times. So just to be clear, if um, if you make mezcal, you're a mezcalero. If you actually own a still, whether it be small or large or whatever, um, then you, you're you called a palenquero. So like a, a palenque is like a still on a farm, right? Palenque is like a, it's a site of mezcal production. I like it. Where Sounds you do the thing. It's a, the sub sub in word would the be estate. distillery if it were actually a distillery. Instead, it's some dude's backyard. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Good point. I mean, you've been down there for the last month or so? Is that right? Uh, I've been down. I went two times in February. I went for... Oh, you were there twice. I thought yeah. you were just there continuously. Oh, God, I wish. Uh, <laughs> I was down for like 12 days at the beginning of February in Oaxaca. And then I went to... Holy to shit. Which one did you try? Oh, yeah. That's super, super cool. That is crazy. Yeah, Uh-oh. it's very different. I, and yeah, this guy's, this guy's, you know. I was, so when I poured that, when you guys were in the middle of the conversation, I was like, I'm, regardless of how interesting this is, I'm not going to do anything on the mic. I'm not going to interrupt the conversation. <laughs> but that was like, yeah, that's that's really interesting. What, what is it that we're drinking here? Are there, I mean, you have the opportunity to try this? Um, uh, nope, but I'm going to get my face in it. So the, the thing that I hate about mezcal, and it's the thing that I love about mezcal, but I, <laughs> I, I hate educating on, is how complicated everything is. There's all these different names for all these different things. You've got dozens of different types of agaves to, to try to understand what they are. You've got things that are types of agaves that grow in different ways and thus produce different flavors. Uh, meanwhile, there are other people who will tell you those are all different distinct species. It gets real, real complicated. Yeah, and, and that's what makes it really confusing, I think, for the consumer as well. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I <laughs> recently stood in the aisle uh, at Benny's in Lincoln Park in Chicago. Um, there was a lady looking at mezcals, and so was I. And she was like, excuse me, do you know anything about this stuff? I was like, a little bit. Why? She's like, I don't really know what's good. I was yeah. like, you got a half hour? <laughs> I just like, <laughs> Give so me a time frame. Yeah. I stood there in the aisle for about a half hour with her. <laughs> you know, and like, we got her some nice stuff. You know? Yeah. She was happy with it. Didn't kill her pocketbook. But yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's confusing. And it's like the wine world, I think, a lot, um, that where people just get really intimidated right off the bat because of all those things that you just mentioned. And then they just kind of abandon it. Um, or they're just like, oh, I had one once and I didn't like it, so I just assume that I don't like any mezcalis. Yeah. Um, and I think the wine world's a really good analogy, too, because as, as we understand and have a broader perspective and learn more, all of a sudden there's people who have been doing their thing where they're from and for a long time, and all of a sudden they're coming to market now. It's not like, hey, what could we do that's different? What different types of grapes could we use? It's like, oh, I'm from Greece, and we make this stuff in my neighborhood that's made from this oddball type of varietal that you've never heard of. So the, the world gets more and more complicated, not because it hasn't always been, but because our lens kind of zooms out to see all that. Right. So it's the same in Mezcal, 100%. So speaking of, uh, of complicated, uh, th- what we're drinking here is not available 
anywhere? It's not available. Well, I mean, it might be available in limited clandestine sale within Mexico. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, it's really interesting that the branding on it, uh, and it's very odd that it does have branding, but there's very good reason behind it, uh, is uh, Chacolo is the name of it. It's a producer in the south of Jalisco over by Michoacan. He's right by the border. Now, here's the catch-22. If he jumped across the border, if his, if his spot was a mile away from where it is, I did not say a kilometer, if it was a mile away, uh, it would be uh, in Michoacan. He could call it Mezcal. He could get a certification for his palenque. He's good. Michoacan is Mezcal country. Jalisco as a state is not. It's tequila country. Um, so because he is where he is, he cannot certify his product. He cannot certify his palenque. He cannot call this Mezcal. Uh, and this guy has just gone totally rogue. Instead of trying to come up with a different name or talk about it in a different way, this guy has just basically said, F the system, I'm gonna do this how I want. I'm gonna call it what I want. I'm gonna sell it where I want. I'm gonna make it from what I want. I'm going rogue. Uh, now there's a catch-all category that lives above tequila mezcal. Let's say I'm making tequila, but I wanna make it a really weird way, right? I'm in the area where I can make tequila, uh, but I'm not gonna follow the laws that, produce, that, that regard tequila. I can still call that destilado de agave, and literally agave distillate. This guy is calling this, he's making it exactly in the mezcal tradition, he's calling it agave distillate, legally. But that's it, he's not saying anything else about what he does. Um, and it gets even more complicated when it comes down to what it's made from, because this guy's gone around and cultivated all these weird mutant agaves uh, that are related to other more common species, and then has cultivated those. So this is from a type of agave that he calls brocha, which is most closely related to what we would call agave espadine, agave angustifolia. Um, but it's a really weird variety. It looks totally different. Um, he's got a bunch of them that he has farmed, and this is what he uses to produce. So there are literally hundreds of different species of agave. Um, the vast majority of mezcals probably being made with espadine. 100%. Which is um, the parent variety of actually the, the the blue agave, which goes into tequila. But there are several dozen different types of species that are allowed to go in to to mezcal. Unlike tequila, theoretically, and I'll do that in quotations because <laughs> who knows what the hell they're actually putting in tequila these days. Whenever they run out of agaves and need to hire the quiotes to go smuggle some agaves from another state. Anyways, um, that's really kooky. Uh, yeah, it is. It's not. Extremely smoky, although there's a, a subtle smoke to it. There's lots of citrus there. Yeah, I mean, the citrus is great. There's a candied green thing, um, kind of an aloe kind of thing. It's very fresh. Um, and there's another aromatic I'm, I'm not really locking on to, but it's, it's kind of one of those, uh, whenever a nuance hits your, your uh, threshold for detection, but not necessarily threshold for recognition, it's kind of like, I smell something, I just don't know what it is. That happens particularly when you have a microphone in front of you as well. <laughs> like, you put a spirit down in front of me at any given time of the day, and I can talk about it for half an hour, and then we turn the microphones on. It's like, hey! Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that sound was. Um, so It was uh, me thinking. That's my brain usually on the inside. <laughs> so uh, we, we've gone to the still. Uh, Mesco has to be twice distilled, right? Uh, not necessarily. Mezcal can be one time distilled. And there's there's all kinds of oddball like differences between what actually gets loaded in the still in Mezcal and what gets loaded in the still in every other spirit. Um, the weird thing about Mezcal is it's got a ton of methanol in it to start. When you have plant matter, when you have a bunch of plant matter, uh, it produces a bunch of methanol when you ferment. So it sounds like that's going to make it 
a more difficult proposition to distill, right? Um, now, here's the weird thing. At certain concentrations, chemicals like to stick together. So at 23%, water and ethanol like to stick together, and constituently their, their weight becomes heavier, right? And you can exploit this depending on what you're doing. They actually do it a lot in rum. Um, they do extractive distillation using that. With methanol, if you have enough methanol in your, in your uh, agave beer, basically, it will stick to the ethanol and become constituently heavier. So what you've done is in rum, in whiskey, in, you know, you're distilling grapes, whatever you're distilling, methanol normally comes out up front, comes out in the heads. So that's very, very important to make sure that you cut your heads and you cut them appropriately because if you don't, you're going to end up making people blind, right? You're going you're gonna to make poison. Right. So with agave spirits, the methanol hangs out in the tails instead of the heads. And this is really weird. And I've had the, the good fortune of seeing Carlos Camarena, master distiller for, um, he does El Tesoro, he does Tapatio, argue this against a non-Mezcal producing distiller, uh, somebody who makes whiskey. And they're like, no, 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 dude, you're crazy. And he's like, come to my distillery, I will show you. <laughs> like, I w like, we will do chemical samples and I will show you where methanol comes out. So uh, methanol um, is a byproduct of fermentation and, and, and all things fermented. It's just going to come out at, at different amounts. It's a single carbon alcohol. It's not the good alcohol like ethanol that we like. And at Jay's point, typically it comes out in the heads. It's the, the low, low boilers, the stuff that comes off a still at a, at a lower temperature, maybe around 160 or so. Uh, before you get to the good shit, ethanol. And then as you're getting towards the end of your run, um, then you're going to get other fusel alcohols, um, larger carbon ethanols that are out there. And I think there, there's actually legislation about um, fusel alcohol content in Mezcal. I think there's no more than 400 milligrams per 100 milliliters that's allowed by law. Um, so it is legislated, and you know it is something they're they're conscious of the the methanol content. See, we're not getting too geeky. <laughs> no, I'm still just enjoying. I, this. I said you're drinking. I was in a zone. When I left the house today, Erica said like three times, "Don't drink that much mezcal." I'm like, "What? What? What? Don't drink that much mezcal. I'll be fine." Don't drive and drink. Yeah, I'm I cool. had to be very conscious of it with this uh, early trip to. Uh, Woodford and uh, Wild Turkey tomorrow morning. morning. Yeah, that's. I was like, I got, I've got to work tonight. Mm -hmm. Not, not. Uh, this is again. Uh -huh. This is an odd recording day for us. It, yeah. it's a Saturday afternoon. Saturdays are typically days we can't. I Recognition can't do it threshold. Anyway, so, salted taffy. Ah, that's what oh, I was okay. trying to think about. There you go. All right. That's on the palate more than on the nose, though. Yeah, it's got that little kind of briny thing, but it's got that sweetness that kind of that kind of hangs on. There's definitely yeah. salinity. Now, sticking caramel for a second, but no, it's more like uh, circus peanuts or taffy or something. Yeah, yeah, circus peanuts. Yeah, totally. Circus peanuts. So um, you'll never be able to try this, but it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, any other like criteria that Mesco has to? Fit within like alcohol level windows. There's like uh, that. what's it? The maximum ABV you can bottle mezcal at, I believe, is 55. Um, there's a distillation threshold that I don't remember off the top of my head. You can't mm. distill past a certain proof. Um, Which makes sense. You're retaining the like in uh, like in whiskey, you can distill to 160 proof, right. but then you have to barrel it at 120. Like right. that, that sort of deal. It's funny to think about these re these regulations, like knowing what the properties are like. You know, <laughs> like again, right. there's. There's no small lab, you know, that they right. have on on premises. It's interesting though, because one of the things, and this is this is really poignant, because we're drinking something that is uh, 
very poignantly anti-certification. You know, this, this producer does not believe in the institutions that exist surrounding mezcal. When you put the word mezcal in a bottle, that does mean certain things. And in order to certify as mezcal, you have to send a sample of every single batch out to a laboratory. So you're sending, you're bottling it into a sample bottle in the sticks and then sending it off to, you know, a clinical lab to break it down and, and, and analyze how much methanol is in this. Because there's always some methanol in pretty much every distilled spirit that you have. There's a little bit more in agave spirits than you normally would have, but it's not that you know noteworthy. But there's a, there's a limit. You can only have X amount, uh, maximum allowable acid, like all these different uh, parameters that that mezcal is is defined by. You have to get each batch approved to make sure that it falls within. And if it doesn't, people sit on this product. They don't have anything that they can do with it. What do you think are some misconceptions about mezcal? And I know there's a lot of them. You know, like yeah. there's supposed to be a worm in the bottle, or sure, it's supposed yeah. to be smoky and all that shit. Yeah, I think the smokies the really the really tough one, um, because it, it it like anything else that you have, everything's gonna come together. Like if you eat really good barbecue ribs, the first thing you don't think is, oh my god, these ribs are so smoky. Like it, it, <laughs> right. that, there's an element of that there, but it integrates with everything else. I think that's that it, a really quality mezcal has an elegant balance, and yeah, it's gonna have a smoke element. And if you're not if you're not used to drinking things that have a smoke to them, it's going to stick out to you like a sore thumb the first two, three times you have it. But, but using your that, analogy, so would barbecued ribs if you're not used to eating right. smoked meat. It's going to jump out because it's something that's unfamiliar. But as you get used to it and you, you experience it more and more, I very rarely, when tasting something, this, this Chocolo that you're working on right now has a little note of smoke that kind of juts through. And I normally don't call out smoke ever when tasting mezcal. This one, it, it, it comes out a little bit for me and, and kind of makes its presence known. Um, but yeah, it's, that's the number one misconception is that this is going to be a smoke bomb. And kind of beyond that, I think when people have a cocktail with mezcal, you're taking something that's inherently not super crazy smoky to begin with and then putting a bunch of other stuff in with it. And people want that superlative experience. They want that over-the-top smoke. And you're not going to get it out of a cocktail unless you use a smoking gun and, you know, cedar chips. You right, know? yeah. Uh, um I mean, how many places, how many states in Mexico, <laughs> this gets into a, a, the rabbit hole because it's, it's, it's regulation hole. versus, yeah. you know, uh, reality. The, the pushback and reality of it. Um, but uh, according to regulation, how many states are can put Mezcal on the label? Nine currently. Nine at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Is, so does one get approved? Was, is Puebla it did, and am I not counting Puebla in? Puebla came in a bit over a year ago. Um, okay. Need to update that file. Yeah. <laughs> Or travel more. That too. Yeah, Puebla, Puebla snuck in, and, and there's there's all kinds of politics surrounding that, but there are traditional producers there. Um, but that, that's a, that was kind of a heated uh, kind of move, and, and Arthur was, we were talking about it off air uh, a little bit earlier about the Camille argument, from, which apparently yeah. never happened. Yeah, thank God. Uh, yeah, um, using a word that nobody even in Mexico uses uh, to describe the distillate. But, I mean, you can make mezcal from pretty much anywhere in Mexico. You just... you aren't able to put mezcal on the label unless it comes from one of those nine exactly nine and that's states. that's why i get really finicky with it because i whether or not we like the laws they're there um and so you know if it's from the mezcal producing regions we call mezcal anything other than that i'll just call an agave spirit or like you know something made in the mezcal tradition i know it's a semantic you know tiny change but for well, me like what we're drinking now with with the uh, the lado de agave so lado de agave exactly just, just agave distill it so yeah i mean Knocking out the base level. If you want to know what what it tastes like any further, you just have to drink it. Exactly. I like, I like his style. Yeah. I like I mean, and also 
the label of this is pretty informative as well. I mean, he's, it is. All the information on it is wrong because he did like a larger batch and had these really sick oh, labels funny. made up. Uh, that so right he's like, there, yeah, screw it, tape, tape it on. So it's basically like a very handsomely cut. They took time to cut that piece of masking tape to that exact size. <laughs> you uh, really did. You can see this cut up here. On the very, very trim. All the kitchen people out there will be very pleased with that. That it's properly cut and sized masking tape. That's what the actual label is. Which all it says is brocha agosto and dos mil. Uh, 25. So, yeah, you've got, that's it. You just got the type of agave and when it was made. That's the real label. But everything else, he, he has produced um, more uh, detailed stuff in the past and, and, and used these labels for him. But now I think he's just got a bunch of labels sitting around. So. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Guys chilling on the front label. Yeah, he's but again, the there's the illustration of the agaves like we were talking about before. And, um, I mean, you can really kind of see the scale. Which, I bought a new machete last weekend. No, oh, Jesus. Why do you buy weapons so often? Zombies. <laughs> so that's why you need the battle axes and you've got a machete. Nunchucks. Switchblades. I forgot you were talking I'm with... Uh, about nunchucks. You were talking I'm with Sherry about it. With nunchucks. <laughs> people laugh at that shit, but... You just like had two guys at the bar turn around and look at you. <laughs> See? People, people like nunchucks. It's like, watch out. Although I'm pretty sure Sherry, our, our recent master wine guest, is... Uh, not had too many interviews talked about nunchucks. No, probably not. I think she's out in Portland and Vancouver because I uh, sent her some recommendations on food. Um, no, or was heading in that direction. So I know she was going from Indianapolis to California. And I think after that she went up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, God knows what she's doing. Master one, so yeah. she get pulled in fifteen directions. Speaking what? of directions, uh, you know, uh, so you're in between jobs at the moment. That's how you were able to spend so much time last month. In, in uh, Mexico. Exactly. Um, so previously kind of an owner partner at Las Flores and prior to that working with a huge company. I mean, Rick Bayless, I think, is a pretty pretty much a household name at this point. Yeah. Uh, between his television shows and, of course, in the Midwest, he's huge and legit legit food and a great mezcal program. But so what's next? What, what are you thinking? Uh, yeah. You know? uh, well, once my fun employment ends, <laughs> very much enjoying it right now, though, I'll tell you the benefits and compensation have a lot to be desired, but um, <laughs> yeah, right. it's, uh, I've, I've got a couple things lined up. Um, it, I mean, hand of God, what I'd really love to do is, is double down and, and open another spot and really do more of this exact same thing. Uh, try to see if I could take it to a further, uh, more cultural level. Um, Las Flores is a really interesting um, balancing act because I wanted to make sure we weren't purporting to be experts on anything we couldn't actually be experts on. So, like, if we're, you know, playing, you know, like very authentic Mexican music or we've got like a cuisine element, that was something I was really worried about. Were we able to execute a cuisine element um, in the way that I wanted to be able to execute it and have the level of staff education and have those expectations be there? Since we weren't able to do that in the scope and in the time frame that I put the project together in, I just sidestepped it entirely. It's like, we're gonna talk about the things we, we're good at and if you bring up like, why are you guys blare hip hop in here? It's like, okay, well, let's talk about it. Like. What 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 do you expect when you come into a venue like this? What does that look like? Like, let's talk about that as a point of culture. Like, we're an outsider on both of these things. Yeah, which is where how I met you. Yeah, um, just sitting at the bar. I talked to. I, it was gosh, I think you'd only been open four months at that point. Yeah, I, I had just jumped over from Money Gun, and I was just trying to kind of hit all the new places that I hadn't been. And uh, I I was looking through your cocktail list, and every single cocktail was a mezcal drink, uh, and the 
young lady that was taking care of me behind the bar. I, I said, is everything is everything here in Mexico? Um, I mean, I realize I'm in a Mescaleria, but, yeah. you know, I mean, I was fine with it, but I was just curious. And she's like, no, yeah, at first I was really... I was really uh, leery about working at a place that was like really had a single vision on, on the cocktail list, but we've you know we've been really busy and whatnot, and and that's at which point I think you came over with a bottle that had masking tape on it, and, yeah. <laughs> and then that was the end of me talking to her. We, then we just kind of got to get into the got into the mezcal conversation. But uh, speaking of like being you know authentic and you know really paying attention to people that are making this product and whatnot, you just recently put up a, a big post on Facebook uh, regarding. Um, well, in addition to some of the policies that the um, current administration is putting forth, but like I was I mean, just about to bring that up, yeah, putting, oh, yeah. putting in uh, you know real respect for the people that are that are doing the work here, because as we mentioned, you know this is not a uh, a high tech job. You know they're they're out there with you know, horses and, yeah. and farms without electricity or running water and whatnot. So uh, you want to talk a little bit about what you what you had to say? Absolutely, I, I think you know. <laughs> My biggest fear as an outsider is, you know, looking at the field of, of mezcal and agave spirits, and, and it, it, it the roots drive all the way down into the very cultural fabric of Mexico. Like it, it's inextricable. You can't just talk about the stuff that's in the bottle here and not have it eventually loop back on on a deeper perspective, right? And the last thing I wanted to do is be an outsider who's just like, this stuff's really cool. I think it's delicious. Like, and then have that be as deep as the knowledge went like I think it's really important that in order to, if you're going to dedicate your life to understanding mezcal and and being an ambassador for it on a broader scale your knowledge has to go almost infinitely deep like you have to constantly be digging more and more and learning about cultural traditions the indigenous peoples of Oaxaca have a huge impact on on what mezcal is and how it's come together and how the marketplace works even so looking at all those things and, and kind of you know, looking at, at kind of a broader perspective of how some people have looked at, at the field, it, I worry a lot. I worry about being seen as an outsider, being seen as a cultural appropriator, someone who doesn't know anything about this or is just coming in trying to make a buck or is trying to make this about me. And, you know, that's the exact opposite. Like, this is, this is very much uh, enjoying these spirits is to pay tribute to the people who have worked really damn hard to make them. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that it's important to kind of remind ourselves of that, especially like, I mean, like, look at any cuisine that you could cook. If you're going to, right down the street from me, excellent example in a very positive direction, uh, right down the street from Mezcaleria Las Flores was um, a spot called Fat Rice. Oh, and yeah. it's this dude, uh, Abe Conlon, and his wife, such an amazing um, place. Yeah, Adrian they just Lowe. made it to the finals for Beard, right? Yeah, James Beard, um, semifinalist or finalist, I, however they break it down, but regardless of awards or no awards it's some of the best food you're going to have in chicago period yeah it's like, phenomenal it's so good yeah because uh, they're doing like macanese food so i mean right. like macau's got a very unique cuisine as jay is alluding to because of the way uh the, well it was a portuguese colony so uh, you get this kind of portuguese chinese I, you don't want to say mashup because it's not that it, it evolved together and it, pre-fusion fusion like yeah, it, right. it's, it's, it's these cultures <laughs> that have come together in a really weird unexpected way and, and filled in each other's gaps and, and worked in, in with strange synergy uh, you, you look at that as such a shining star example of how to approach such a, a left field you know cultural perspective on food and to do it the right way and to put it out there and to put all the credit back to where it, it needs to come from and then I'm not going to name names or even talk about cuisine but there's another restaurant in Chicago I had a really awesome conversation about recently and it is 
it is doing a cuisine that had eventually an imperial expatriate influence. I'm dancing around saying what the cuisine <laughs> is. Uh, that had an imperial uh, expatriate kind of uh, link to it. And so instead of just doing the cuisine in question, it's like, no, 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 no. It's this like imperial take, because we're outsiders, it's this imperial take on right. uh, this other culture interpreting this culture's food, but we're just going to do recipes from the original culture's food. It's like really roundabout and really weird, and it feels like it kind of circumvents ownership of the idea away from, it, it routes that away from the people uh, who actually created the cuisine and the culture that that exists in. Or the agave. Or, yeah. Exactly. Well, but that would you pass that tip of statue oh. over there? Oh, yeah. So, Thank you. But this is kind of a little bit of a double-edged sword, too, right? So, I mean, with the growing popularity with evangelists out there like you that uh, and Arthur, really, for that matter, because Arthur is an educator on this subject as well, um, you know, you obviously you want to grow people's awareness uh, so that everyone can understand exactly what it is that they're drinking and Whoa. appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I know. It's beautiful. Um, but the more popular it becomes, the greater risk it becomes to their livelihood because of the seven to 10 years of, you know, of time that it takes for the maturity of the agave. Um, you know, obviously anything we've seen the tequila wave and like Arthur had alluded to earlier, you know, you don't know what the hell they're doing with it because it's, there's such great demand for it now to catch up. I mean, what, what risk do you see having traveled quite a bit down to Oaxaca, you know, you see that happening yet? You know, where there like any shortage of agaves, or I mean, even the wood that's used to uh, to um, roast the agaves. I mean, that's got to come from somewhere. They got to cut down trees in order right. to do that. Yeah, it's it, instead of. I don't think there are any pitfalls that that the industry is falling into yet. I instead see this branching off world of possibility. This is. I have no horse in the race when it comes to mezcal, but this is as close as I come. <laughs> With, with mezcal as a category, we as consumers, as people who take our hard-earned money and either go forth and sell a product and put it in, in an end consumer's hand or buy it ourselves and drink it, um, vote with our dollars day in and day out. And there is the good news is there is money to be made. And these are communities. Oaxaca is the second poorest state in all of Mexico. And many of the mezcal producing communities are in the poorest parts of the state. So the fact that there's money to be made is... A, you know, beautiful, beautiful thing. I think it's up to us as consumers to make sure that when we support producers, that they're supporting the values that that we think protect mezcal. We, we what is good for the people? What is good for the culture? What is good for the communities? What is good for um, the sustainability production? Our dollars right now and what the consumer wants are going to mold what the industry becomes. So we have great power right now, more than. More than any other spirit in the world, mezcal right now could come out a hundred different ways, you know, 50 years from now, depending on what consumers do now and the level of education that we have. So we definitely encourage any of our listeners out there to, you know, to dig a little bit deeper, particularly when it comes to mezcal, because this is, it could potentially become a sustainability issue. Um, like Jay just said, I mean, there's a, a thousand ways this could go in the next 50 years, um, because with the global market, which is changing the spirit in, in industry, Globally, you know, I mean, we there is hardly anything you can't get your hands on these days in, in a well-supplied market, um, and so yeah, I mean that's educate yourself a little bit, and that's what Arthur and Jay are there for, or, or find your local mescal Actually, I'm going to give you a shout out too, Jay. Uh, when I last time was hanging out with you uh, at Las Flores, um, 
I was just a few weeks away from going to Washington, D.C., and you had said, oh, there's this new place that just opened. You yeah. should totally go oh, in so and check awesome. out Aspita, which so I've now awesome. been to s- several times. I've told Arthur to go there. Actually, I went there during uh, Diageo World Class and spent... We went there for lunch with my buddy Rolf, who was uh, a distributor for El Bujo in, in, in D.C. And we left... We went there for lunch with him, and I think we left... At about 8.15 when we realized oh that when the, uh, the, the uh, world-class ceremony was going to be starting soon, so yeah. we had to haul ass to get back over to, to there. Like, apparently, they had closed in between. We didn't even know that. But it was great because I, I, that was your suggestion. I walked in, uh, met Megan. Uh, Megan's awesome. And, uh, but also, even cooler, um, well, even cooler, there's a bartender named Ed behind the bar. Um, but there was a gentleman behind the bar there named Bismarck, uh, who I had known from OYML. I did oh, not wow. know that he had changed jobs. Uh-huh. And I walked in, and he had seen on Facebook that I was coming into D.C., and I walked in, and he said, hey, I thought you were supposed to be here yesterday. I was oh, like, geez. I didn't even know you fucking worked here, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, I thought you worked at OML still. He's like, oh, I didn't tell you. Like, no, I apparently didn't, but I'm glad I ended up in the right place. Yeah, it's a great so, place. Oh, I yeah, you could spend yeah. way too much time there. Um, I was in D.C. serendipitously lecturing on Mezcal, doing a three-hour lecture on Mezcal. I go in there and... And the server came up, and they were like, uh, familiar with Mezcal? Just ear-to-ear smiles. Why, yes, but what can you do uh, for me? And they just kept bringing out Mezcal, and more Mezcal, and more Mezcal. Uh, actually, it was the first time I tried, and I can't remember who the producer was, uh, the, uh, a venison pachuga, um, as opposed to just, like, chicken. Yes, and I tried one as well. Was, I don't know if it was an espita, though. Iodiny and meaty and bloody. It was awesome. It was weird. And segue to tasting things. What you? This is kooky. Uh, yeah. This. So what are we drinking this mystery now? Mystery. So, yeah. Now we have a mystery bottle. So this is. I bought this directly at the Palenque. Both of these are things that I purchased at the Palenque. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. Um, so this is. Uh, it's worth pointing out that this is a uh, plain clear bottle with some blue uh, painters tape that anybody that works in a restaurant is more than familiar with. And it just has written ABV uh, and a couple other details that I can't see from here. So, yeah, this is uh, agave tevestate. Uh, so, tevestate is a type of agave. You said that uh, esparin is the most common. Um, it is ancestrally related to Weber Blue uh, that most people are familiar with from tequila. Agave tevestate is scientifically known as agave marmorata. Um, they have these really big, like, aloe-looking, gnarly leaves. Um, they grow really big. They take quite a bit of time, generally, to grow. I would think it would be uncommon to find one younger than 15 years coming to maturity. Um, and yeah, so this is from uh, San Baltazar Goyla Vila, uh, just outside of Santiago Matatlan in Oaxaca. Uh, the producer is Don Goyo. He's a really well-respected producer out there. Um, some of his juice does make its way to the States. He has worked in the past with um, El Jogorio, the brand, and uh, they brought in his Tepestate before in, in batch, but this is straight from the source. The, uh, the aromatics, um, I'm probably not going to convert anyone to Mezcal with this, but they <laughs> remind me of um, like a pickle barrel with tobacco ash. Yes, and that's then a exactly bit of what a, I picked up. That's why okay. I, when, when I first put my nose too. in the glass, that's exactly what I picked up immediately. Was it's kind very, of a, um, very dilly. Very yeah. dilly, which is kooky because that's an aromatic I typically associate with American oak, and obviously this hasn't spent any time in oak. Um, yeah, that's all from the agave, too. Like, when you when you taste side-by-side, side, you know, agave tepestate has so many green flavors to it, and it comes through loud and clear on this for sure. Yeah, yeah. there's a... Uh, it, again, we're not turning people on in these notes, but, I mean, there's a there's a beaniness to it, you know, that's... 
Well, you know, anyone who tastes really stuff professionally, like you have your inside tasting voice. Uh, these are the aromatics <laughs> right. that I share with people that are in the trade, and then you have the aromatics that you might, you know, talk to at a table. And if I were selling this fine mezcal, I would not go to a table and be like, it's kind of like tobacco ash with pickle barrel. You'll yeah. love it. Yeah. But the greatest was I was in, speaking of D.C., um, if you can't tell by this point, it's one of my favorite uh, food and beverage towns, but... I was there with uh, Dave Delaplane, who's the general manager of Roofers Union. So he's a big beer geek, and so he just got off work. And well, no, I guess he hadn't worked that night. But anyways, we were just bar hopping. He's like, "Hey, let's go to Church Key," and they have a ridiculous beer list. I mean, their cellar list alone is bigger than most beer bars have. And uh, the bartender and him were just—they knew each other, and they're talking, geeking out about different things. And he's like, "Oh, you know, what have you got?" And this guy said, "I've got blah blah blah," and it's—it's it's really amazing. It's this, you know, we've had it in the cellar for a couple of years. It's just really shitty. Oh, good. <laughs> no, 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 just, like literally. Yeah, and I, I, I just turned my head, and I'm like, are you ordering a shitty beer? And he's like, well, I mean, like, no, it's got, like, kind of these, like, barnyardy notes. So I was like, but again, like Arthur says, that's our outside voice when we're talking to a consumer. Like, that's the barnyard note, but yeah. they were both industry. Like, no, it's it's shitty. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, there's the other special uh, Sotol note uh, that I've picked up in, in numerous, is that you have to have your special customer to um this is one that i've heard and i'll tell you this the i'll tell you you know yeah i have no experience cocaine, none but yeah. i've heard that from multiple sources that that is uh that it's that is got a uh, alkaline cocaine kind of very pharmaceutical i was i was in the town of Gondas pharmaceutical itself, there's a way to put it and that's the like, one you use at the table at the table yeah, it's deeply encoded yeah. <laughs> yeah. the master distiller i was hanging out with in this small little cocaine town there's no doubt in my mind it was, it's a it's a front um, cartel the whole type town shit. is a front. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's like an old western town in a Clint yep. Eastwood movie. They just got like a cardboard yep. facade. There's nothing behind anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, <laughs> I was in there talking to him, and he was like, "Well, what do you think the flavor?" You know, and I start going down my sommelier path, and I'm like, "Cypress, hibiscus, citrus, a little bit of smoke." And he was like, "Yeah, some people say it tastes like cocaine." And I'm like, <laughs> "All right then." Well, again, pharmaceutical action, a little bit of drainage in the back of the throat. Okay. I, like yeah, it. I, I mean. Like I said, I've had a checkered. I don't know why I just like <laughs> broke out in my Cheech Marin voice there. Yeah, I was. Either. I was wondering, you know, is that talk about offensiveness? And then you roll right into Donald Trump's impression of uh, <laughs> Im- Im- immigrants, right? Because that that's synonymous with Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're sitting here drinking mezcal to try to like, you know, it's a coping pre- mechanism. Pretend that this isn't happening around us. Unfortunately, mm. we can't really do that. And especially, I mean, that is a good point though, because I mean, there's real risk of some of these products not making their way into the U.S. with, you know, proposed policies. I mean, I don't even know their proposed policies. They're just uh, proposed. They don't, they're they just don't rants. They're just fucking rants. Yeah. It just goes off about... It's scary, though, no doubt. Because nobody knows yeah. what the hell this guy's capable of doing. And, I mean, it's broad-scale protectionism is what he's talking about. He's talking about setting up tariffs, even even if not just specifically in Mexico, just in general. Like, if you start raising taxes on things, all imported goods are going to get more expensive. And mezcal ain't cheap to begin with, you know? No, it is not. So. And I find that um, a barrier as well to, like, getting... Uh, people to, to try it, you know, because like I said, the lady in the aisle at Benny's, I mean, I think the least expensive mezcal that was uh, on the shelf at that time was, you know, 35 bucks, which yeah. it's not ridiculous, but you know, that's 35 hardened dollars that if you pour yourself an ounce of and you think it's terrible, um, you now have a full bottle of something that you have to try to force on your friends. Yeah, right. but, so on that note, and if you do acquire a palate for mezcal, which I hope everybody does, please do, uh, please do. You know, you're talking about something that costs probably 35 50 bucks a bottle, upwards from there on. But 
think about how much goes into that bottle and how unique the bottlings are. You know, again, this is not an annual plant. It, it's a plant that lives and, and dies with, with one reproduction, takes years to mature. So you're waiting for 15 years or whatever in, in the case of many species, and then you have to slowly cook it for several days, and then you slowly ferment it with ambient yeast, and then you, again, you know, the hammers, God damn it, hammers, is how they're breaking these things up. So there's a lot of, of love that goes into these products. Um, that's not bad when you're talking about a lot of other products out there that are mass-produced, whether it's, you know, uh, mass-production oak-infused cognacs and, and crap like that. There's a lot of shitty product out there yeah, that costs like, a quote, lot more. premium brands that are just putting a bunch of additives Speaking in. Speaking of which, pass me one of those bottles. Jay, do you know anything about this species? Oh, Habali? Habali. Yeah. I was going to call it Jabali. Jabali. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're close. Uh, yeah, agave habali. Habali is wild boar. A lot of agaves, so it gets real damn confusing too because a lot of agaves have multiple names, right? So you've got your scientific name. Um, and and then regional. And, and then you've got like regional name or like sometimes nickname. So this is wild boar is what they, they've nicknamed this agave. Chingale. Um, it's a pain in the butt, man. It's totally hard to work with. Um, and it sticks out among all types of agave that, that people used to produce as being a total pain in the dick to work with. Um, pain in the dick. Oh, my God. It's So the thing is, when you roast the agave and you, you take it, if you took a piece of the agave and moved it between your hands, it makes a bunch of foam. Uh, it's got these chemical components in it called saponins. And they make foam, and the foam doesn't go away either. It just hangs out. So... Um, when you take this and you, you mill it, that's fine. You know, it gets a little foamy, whatever, but you throw out the fermenter, the fermenter starts to just produce this foam as the CO2 comes out of the ferment, and it just starts to bubble over. Uh, so, number one, you're spilling, uh, you know, you're, you're fermenting aguamiel all over everything. Uh, then when you put it inside the still, you start to heat it up, it starts to foam too because it bubbles, right? Uh, so that foam all stays and it goes up and through the still. So you have foam coming out the still. Uh, it's a total pain in the ass to work with. Hmm. A lot of producers have sworn off. Like I know a, a, a producer friend of mine up in the Sierra Norte has has tried to swear off making agave jabalí. Um, everyone likes his jabalí so much that he may continue to produce it, but he is trying to figure out a way to never have to make it again. So how do you deal with that foam in the still? Uh, I mean... Do you have to run that through multiple times? Yeah, you have to run it through multiple times. So oftentimes the first and sometimes even your second distillate will have color to it. Uh, everything that comes out of a still is clear if it evaporated before coming out the other side of it. So it just foams up and straight through and, and you get that foam back on the other side. Um, I've seen multiple production techniques like people putting a cooler around the head of the still to try to cool it down and make the foam die down. Um, yeah, there's no good way of doing it, really. You just, and you also don't fill the, the still all the way. You fill it only halfway, maybe a little bit less. Right, right, right. Yeah. You don't want to really over. restrained. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, it, it, it really is guy. almost completely absent of a smoke kind of a thing. You just get, like, kind of palm fruit. Havali oftentimes has really strong, like, delicate floral characteristics to it. It's generally really, like... There's some blossom things going on. There's a florality to it. Yeah. But it, it does seem kind of dialed down, though. So what do you drink when you're uh, at home? I mean, oh my I'm gosh. sure you have a ridiculous I, collection of mezcal like I do rum. and I do, and I, don't, and I, I try to don't not drink it. it. Right, yeah. I, try yeah. To, I, I seriously am like, and, and I want to I file this under like selflessness, but it's probably more like being a hoarder. Yeah, um, that's where I am. I like sharing this stuff with people, so like I try. I always have the stuff that I want to get rid of, and that's what I'm generally drinking <laughs> right. on, though. 
when I do get the the notion to kind of treat myself, I do try to break out some some cool stuff that I got stashed away. But. Yeah, I I tend to yeah if, if I'm alone and just wanted a drink, I don't typically go for the the baller stuff. Yeah, because you know, you're right, it is it's more fun to share. Uh, it's more fun to share when everyone around is sober and they can appreciate it. You yeah. Know? Unfortunately, sometimes I have to lock those bottles away for myself so you don't get halfway down into a, a rare bottle. But that's typically the stuff that I don't feel bad about drinking is whatever I can replace easily. Yeah. If it's easily replaced, I'm okay to do that. Yeah. In terms yeah. of, like, types of hard. agave, like, I think it, one of the cool things about mezcal is it's so personal and you can kind of, like, start to develop a palate for what you like and what you don't. A lot of people, it's really popular right now to say your favorite type of agave is javali because it's such a pain in the butt to work with. Like, really? It's got this kind of mystique sort of thing to it, and it's you don't see them is that Is that often. a really popular thing to say? It is. In, in mezcal circles, yeah. It was, <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you have any javali? What do you have? Like, and I think some of that's bandwagon, and I think some of it's because it is really legitimately good. Um, favorite agave types for me, I like agave coyote an awful lot, which is a type of coyote agave americana. Delicious. It's like deep and dark and like baking spicy. Um, I like agave cuiche or largo, sometimes cuiche called. Is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's like deep and dark and bitter. You're noticing a theme with this like dark thing. I love dark yeah. flavors. I do um, too. Yeah, I think the cuiche was, uh, or not the cuiche, but that's, I think, what started a conversation between you and I the first time I met you. Yeah. Um, it's probably the Bago cliche. It's yeah, so, so it, good. It, yeah, it's I, delicious. I don't think it would have been, though, because I'd, I'd had that enough times by the time. I'm trying to think of what else it could have been. I it mean, could, it could have been. I, I, I'm <laughs> So, Las Flores usually ends up being my last stop of the night. Yeah. Um, just because of geographically, you know, in Chicago, I'll start, you know, in, like, Avondale area and then work my way to Lost Lake, which I guess technically is over the breaking point, whatever the cross street is there yeah and then yeah by the time i get to las flores I'm <laughs> but it's good though because you're drinking meat spirits you're not you know drinking quite as quickly as tiki drinks and things like that so it slows me down and i can really appreciate it a little bit more but yeah, i'm pretty sure. sure we did share a glass of cliche uh it could have been it could have been the real monero they're largo i think it might have been, been yeah, yeah. Because those are, it depends on the town, and there's a bunch of weird stuff in Minas, so they change names around and stuff, but the Largo's there equivalent. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of what we drink, because I think I just said, just, what what do I need to try? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you bring down the stuff off the shelf that I need to try, and Start I, I will let models. you guide me. Which, you know, if I, I encourage everybody out there to do that, because, you know, that's how you learn. You know, the, we spend our lives educating ourselves about weird niches, you know, glug, Arthur glug, glug. with, uh, you know, Grower Champagne and Mezcal. Uh, Jay with Moscow, myself with rum. Like, you know, best thing to do is go to the bartender and be like, what do you guys do? What are you all about? What are you passionate about? And like, and really dive in. Let, let them take you on a journey because you'll learn some cool things that you probably didn't think you knew or <laughs> you definitely didn't know, but you didn't uh, think that you wanted to know. I mean, you unknown know, unknowns. Yeah, exactly. You don't know what you don't know, but um, there's, there's so much cool info out there. Uh, I really, uh, I'd love to see three, four more Moscow bars here. You know, There's every- room in the market, I think. The, the problem is the fact that the, sp- the booze is so expensive. Uh, I pulled a punch uh, figuring out how to do Mescalerie Las Flores in, in doing one-ounce pours. I don't feel that that's insubstantial, but at the same time, it allows you to lower the price an yeah. awful lot it, it, comparatively, and you don't have to commit to a big two-ounce glass or something, um, and it lets you try more things. Well, that brings me to uh, another question. Um, so... I'm a consumer. I walk into uh, a mascaleria or, um, you know, or a great place like we are here at La Margarita in, in Fountain Square where he's got agave across the board, tequila and mezcal. Um, when I order 
a mezcal flight or a couple different mezcals. Typically, I'm getting it in a little clay uh, copita, yeah. or just like a kind of a, a shallow clay dish that holds about an ounce of booze, um, with kind of some little salt on the side, maybe a lime or an orange, something like that. I mean, you want to kind of explain that preparation and where that comes from? Oh yeah, for sure. It is a hundred percent traditional. If your definition of tradition is the 1970s. Um, <laughs> As with all things in mezcal and in life, tradition is this very evolving thing. Um, they're cool. They're, they're really presentational. Um, their little earthen clay cups are all made by hand. Um, they're particularly favored by the producer Del Maguey. They, they love those things. Um, and I think they're a really handsome and really um, transformative way to serve mezcal. It, it shows you that what you're having here is not just some sort of clear liquid in a glass, that this is a thing to be special, uh, to, to consider as something special and to, to revere. Um, yeah, the history of drinking mezcal out of different vessels, like, copitas have never performed a really important role in Oaxaca. Much more common and much more, I think, culturally impactful are jicaras, which are big dried gourds. Um, now, if you put an ounce of mezcal on that, it's going to look like there's nothing <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the glass. Uh, Fill but, it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to the brim, please. They generally probably hold about 15 ounces. Um, Oof. Yeah. Uh, the nice thing about jicaras, though, they're definitely pre-Columbian. Um, they're dried gourds. That's all they are. Um, and they're cut in half. And they don't like to sit flat or anything, but that's... If you go to a, a palenque, uh, generally speaking, if you're drinking mezcal there, you're going to be drinking out of one of those. And they don't break, and they're very, very inexpensive to make. So so what's the... Uh, what is salt de gusano? Salt de gusano. Um, it's always, oftentimes, if I get if I get the copita, it's got the salt on the side. Sure, it's got yeah. a little bit of spice to it, a little bit of smokiness to it. It's another kind of evolving tradition in mezcal. Like, I, the route that we went at Mezcaleria Las Forest is to do more of like a composed conceptual salt de gusano, but literal salt de gusano is worm salt. Um, you flip back to those pre-Columbian times, of which I'm so fond, and you've got... Um, a very limited source of protein in the diet of most people, and bugs are a valid way to, you know, get get a little meat in your life. I'm sorry to chuckle, but I just looked at my phone and someone posted online: "If you voted for President Zoolander, you're a shit stain." <laughs> 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 That's awesome. Um, I'm, wow, I'm kind of torn with the glass thing. Like, I like tradition and everything, but I still like. An appropriate nosing vessel. Oh no, yeah, doubt. that's you my know, issue I mean, with it. Is I, like you can't get that aroma. Well, I, I think about like sake. You know, they're like little Ichigo cups, and it's like it's great and quaint, and cute. But like, I remember I was at a Kuru, a uh, rather large uh, Kuru that had a lab <laughs> in a modern facility, and there are all these Japanese scientists, um, sake makers, that are sitting around like nosing and assessing things with their little, you know traditional cups and I see a wine glass on the counter and like poured my shit in there and stuck my nose in and swirled it and I was like wow see how great this works you know yeah. and how much more expressive and aromatic it is and oh sure whatever but, but I know, think that like with anything that like that ritual is so much of a draw and it and it maybe is the, your entrance into that world you know and to like be exposed to it because it looks fun it looks cool I mean yeah. you you when when I would go see you at Las Flores, you know, I you know we'd get the little copitas of, of mezcal, or you know, uh, or you're in Martinique and you get a tea punch and you you build your own tea punch, or you know, like Arthur said, uh, you're drinking sake. So I mean, it's maybe you if you don't know anything about it, but you know, somebody down the bar sees you get that. 
or you've seen somebody get it, like, wait, hold on, what? It's like the blue drink thing, right? Yeah. Somebody orders a blue drink, you're like, I don't know what that is, but that's I want one of those, right? You know, and so that ritual, I think, very often, uh, well, hell, the we saw it with absinthe when absinthe first first came to market, you know, uh, or back to market, I guess, um, about a decade ago, and everybody was going crazy at the at the absinthe houses, you know, with the sugar spoon and cube and all that, and it was very much about the ritual. Uh, now it's just an ingredient that we throw into cocktails and or sit, sit around and sip. But, you know, I think that it does play its part, um, you know, especially with people that feel intimidated by it. And we do have a lot of listeners out there, and that's what we're here for is to educate. Yeah. You know, we don't want to, like, go over everybody's heads, and sometimes we do. But, you know, we're, we're, we're out there trying to, like, you know, encourage you to, to you know, get out of the vodka world. You know, like, don't exclusively drink vodka. If you drink vodka, cool. But, you know, there's there's a lot of other stuff out there that's really Show expressive two. of where it comes from. And, and so I have found, as a side note, and it's no secret that I'm a rum guy, um, but what I have found as I'm, as I go out with rum drinkers, uh, particularly at like rum fests or at tastings, that almost everybody who lives a rum drinker is also a, a fan of, of mezcal. Like okay. if we're not drinking rum, it's mezcal. And I've been trying to figure this out for a while. And I think maybe it's because a lot of rum drinkers get really into, myself included, agriculture. Uh, and you really get a lot of that earthiness um, from mezcal as well. So I'm one, I, I don't know. It's a hypothesis at this moment. Sure, you know? yeah. I don't think it's provable, but I think maybe that's what, what leads a lot of people um, down that path. But, yeah, it's it's kind of strange. I, Matt Petrick, uh, cocktail wonk, you can go back and listen to that episode. See a big mezcal dude? I, uh, he's not a big mezcal guy, but we talked about that, like, you know, being in Miami together and realizing it was like when everybody kind of got burned out, like, if I see another glass of rum, I'm going to fucking stab somebody in the head. And you're like, well, okay, cool. Let's just go drink mezcal instead, you know? Um, I, I don't know where that line is, but, you know, it's definitely um, something I got really interested in. I, I don't know nearly as much as you gentlemen do about it, and I'm still educating myself. And uh, there's not a lot of great material out there. I mean, where would you point somebody if they wanted to go home? There's not and, a lot of great material out oh, there. Oh, dude, yeah. I had a, a really good friend of mine yesterday asked me just like oh hey you know i really want to do a little bit more research on mezcal i want to learn some more uh and i'm looking to pick up a book should i pick this book up or that book up and i was like neither um <laughs> it's it's really tough and and to be honest i'm working on something right now um are you cool trying to put together and and dive in deep because i love diving deep and and i was originally approached by a publisher and they wanted to do something that was more rounded down like okay tell us in you know five paragraphs what mezcal is and then show us a bunch of pretty cocktails and, you know, that was something that I think we did pretty darn well at, at Mezcal de Las Flores uh, before the, right, the recent sure. changes. The, everything was very presentational. Everything was very uh, beautiful in order to try to win people over. And that, that sells cocktail books, and that's great. I also kind of realized I don't really want to write a cocktail book. It, it could have a component of that in it. It could be half cocktail book. That's cool because sure. there's a lot to share there, too. Um, but I want to dive deep on it. But at the same time, 101 is really tough to come by. Like, you know how many years I've been working with Mezcal before it struck me like a bolt of lightning that it's a sour beer to start? Like, it's weird. It's funky. Like, I, the, not, the body of knowledge wasn't there. You know, five years ago, six years ago, people weren't talking about this. And that's something that's so easy to share. Like, if you've ever had a, a nice, crisp, refreshing lager or you've had a sour beer side by side, you can tell they're night and day different. And if you distill those, they're going to turn into something uh, that branches off in different directions. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the truth the, about Mezcal. Um danger i guess i don't i don't know if i want to call it a danger but it's just the world we live in where information is immediately available but 
that everyone's all an expert. But it all happened at once. Like it all happened in the last 17 years. So we went from not knowing what mezcal was, how rum was produced, what grower champagne was, what sour beer was all about, what Britannomyces was all about, to all of a sudden having a flood of all of that information. It's like when the government does a complete like info dump, right? Yeah. If they're like, oh, you want to get info about our secret weapons programs? Here's like 95,000 pages of stuff to come through, and it's on page 4,663, but we're not going to tell you. But good luck finding it. You know, right. but like the, the consumers in that boat now, it's like, well, god damn, you know, like I can't afford to like sit around and read about mezcal and rum and champagne and sure, yeah. wine of Burgundy and the Pacific Northwest and tequila and. Shochu and all of these things that we talk about here on this podcast, which is why we're trying to, no pun intended, distill it down to a little bit more of a you know manageable bite. But it's um, it's tough because I think it is information overload. Yeah. And oh, it is for sure. And I think I think that's where the people who who become specialists and, and dive really deeply into one subject can play the best role as an ambassador for whatever their respective field is. Because if you I say a lot of really dumb things on purpose because <laughs> I think it's really... It, He's what claiming matters, it's on purpose. What, yeah, of course. Every dumb thing I've ever said is intentional. Um, no, but if, if you can put an idea in someone's memory, especially even if they know a little bit better, like if, if, if Arthur, I tell you, all mezcal is made from agave espadine, except for the ones that aren't. If you remember that, you remember the biggest picture and the most important part of the world of mezcal right now, which is mezcal made from agave espadine. Like, everything else that we spend so much time talking about and digging down in and dorking out about is the, you know, the noise uh, in terms of volume produced compared to what espadine mezcal is. That's that's 90% of production. So if you as a consumer understand that, you don't feel as overwhelmed when you go into the liquor store and look at stuff and you say, okay, that one's espadine, that one's espadine, that one's something different. Okay. I at least know that much. So it, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of taking things into, in bite-sized chunks and to be able to give that information off to people so they can understand deeper what, what, what all these big chaotic worlds are and start to parse it out a little bit. Well, this certainly won't be our last um, episode about mezcal. I, it's something that all of us at this table are passionate about. Um, you know, we would love to revisit this over and over and over and over again, and I guarantee that we will. Uh, we've been holding off on this episode for quite a while until we had somebody that was as passionate as we were, and I was, I was really uh, flattered that you reached out to me and said, "Hey, you know, I'd love to drive down from Chicago and, and be on the show." So, hey, this is one thing that hasn't been mentioned yet. Indy's my hometown. This is this is where I'm from. Born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, 75th and Allisonville it was my my family home. My that was your hood. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah, 70th. I was real. Yeah, man. It's, fucking, it's like the south side of Chicago up there. Mean Just watch out for all those beamers. <laughs> yeah. Hey, they're mostly Lexuses, all right? Yeah. Downgrade that a little bit. Um, and yeah, my folks are out in Greenfield, Indiana now, so it's a good excuse to come home and uh, definitely. And drink mezcal, yeah. And, and drink some mezcal, hell yeah. Well, we'll definitely uh, hope to see you a little bit later tonight in one of the restaurants and we'll uh, have some drinks together. Like I said, I got this drive to Louisville tomorrow, so we have to be careful. We'll take uh, it easy on you. How about yeah, that? Yeah, there you go. I we'll we'll tell out you we'll take it easy on you. Where I'm uh, going to have my birthday dinner. Yeah, where are you going? Yeah, 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 I don't yeah. know. Oh, you don't know? Don't know. Let it go. God, I don't remember what I did on my... I, you know, honestly, on my 40th birthday, I'm pretty sure I just worked all day. <laughs> like, I work all day, every day. The only time... only birthday I distinctly remember is, like, a that landmark event coinciding with it, doing something special was... Uh, 
went to Mexico on my 30th. That's my 30th birthday in Mexico, um, but nothing special. Just, you know, we were, it was kind of also my 30th birthday slash very belated honeymoon. So we went down to uh, about 45 minutes south of um, Playa del Carmen and north of Tulum and just yeah, kind of hung out and God, I, I fucking hate resorts, you know, and please, you know, I mean, w- within, use use some common sense out there, folks, but, you know, we were, I was just talking about this last night, and, like, people are so afraid, and they believe all of the terrible, like, information that people give them, like, don't go to Jamaica because it's so dangerous if you leave the resort. Bullshit. If you don't get off the resort, you are missing out on one of the most incredible countries in the Caribbean. Mexico. Like, why would you just go there and park your ass on a beach? Like, there's yeah. beautiful beaches in Florida. Right. There's beautiful beaches in California. You don't have to go all the way to Mexico to do that. But get out. Experience the culture. So as soon as we got there, we were immediately on the colectivo. Like, you know, they were like, right, we're, excuse me, uh, you need a taxi somewhere? I'm like, no, 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 we're good. Just stood out on the uh, carretera and waited for the next colectivo to come around. And, nice. you know, hopped on for whatever it was, 10 pesos. And, you know, it was like... Head on out. It was a great time, that, or it was a great story because we get... We were heading to Tulum uh, the first day, so we jumped on, and I, I'm so big. I mean, I'm like 230 pounds, and I tripped and fell into, like, two young Mexican girls going to work. And, oh, like, God. they've got this heavy guy just laying on them, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, lo siento, lo siento. <laughs> <laughs> but we, there was a, the only non, other non-Mexican people on the colectivo that day were uh, a German couple. And so it was, um, okay, so it was 40... It was 40 pesos for a ride, which was like nothing. I mean, it's a couple bucks, right? And I think it was like $4, something like that. At the, at the time, it was like a 10 to 1. And so we get off with the German couple, uh, went to go pay, and they gave, they had American dollars, and they, they gave the driver a $100 bill, and he just looked up, and he was just like, really? Like, he was like, hold on. <laughs> He's like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute to get the change because he had to get everybody else's money before he could give the change. And so, and then the couple was like, no, 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 it's, it was 80, right? And the guy's like, yeah, it's 80. He goes, they were like, no, 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 it's okay, fine, keep the change. And I'm like, you just gave that guy like a $92 tip. <laughs> like, oh, you know, I bet he wrapped that for the day. He was like, fuck it, I'm going home. You know? it, the fact that he was going to try to get them changed is insane yeah, no. because in Mexico, if you have a 500 peso bill, which is the equivalent of like 22 bucks, and you try to break a 20, this is the biggest bill they have. You try to break that, and people look at you like you're insane. They're like, I, I can't break that. I was Absolutely. just floored. I didn't say anything. I was like, hey, good for that guy. He just got a hell of a tip. Oh, yeah, last trip to Mexico was in Oaxaca, and the guy I was talking to about visiting some Mescaleros was like, yeah, there's this hotel you can stay at. It's kind of expensive, but you know, it's you know, it's, it's nice. I'm like, all right, and I, 700 pesos. I'm like, okay, 40 dollars, yeah. no problem. So, so go um, to Oaxaca. It's a cheap trip. Yeah. Before we wrap up, well, speaking of going to Oaxaca, Rolf Yislev, you're out there listening. I'm still expecting my Obujo trip. So um, just. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyhow, before we wrap up, uh, where can people find you on social media? You're in between. Um, uh, locations, I guess, at the moment. So yep. uh, I guess they have to follow you on personal accounts. Exactly, which is always a good thing. Uh, I am I'm on the Facebook. Uh, I have uh, I have to look up. I want to double check because I know my Instagram and my Twitter are very similar, and I don't want to use one instead of the other and have it not work. I so don't on want Facebook, you guys he's a Jay Schrader, else. and uh, yeah, I follow. You. I was trying to find you on Instagram a little bit earlier, and I, I couldn't remember. What Instagram it was. is my full name. 
uh, annoyingly. So it's James Edward Schrader, and Schrader spelled like Schroeder. And then, uh, yeah, my Twitter account is at James E. Schrader. There you go. All right. Uh, Anybody out there that wanting to reach out to us, you can find us at uh, shiftdrinkpodcast.com. You can stream all of our episodes through there. We also put up blog posts, things like that. Um, We've got couple couple blog posts up and we also are uh, we just posted our um, seminar with Sherry Morano the master of wine that we did our episode with uh, on our last episode two weeks ago so you can find her actual lecture uh, in the class that she did the following day uh, on Twitter you can find us at shift underscore drink uh, but then everywhere else we're a shift drink podcast so uh, definitely reach out to us there and, and please rate us on iTunes it helps us to do what we do uh, it helps us to uh, get more listeners to you know help support the show. So uh, please go into iTunes and, and rate us. And uh, you know we've only got one more question left. What's your hangover cure? Oh, <laughs> you have to. I, I you wish you guys could see the look on Jay's face Ooh. right now. You have <laughs> to sweat it out. Uh, so got like, real big. Not preferable. Like the bad version of that is exercise, which I don't recommend. The good version it does of work that, though. It does work, unfortunately. A sauna or a really hot bath, and then you gotta hydrate. I'm going Topo Chico all the way. It's God's nectar. It's the best stuff on earth. Nice. All right. Well, I like it. Yeah, I, I, I've integrated the sauna. If I'm in the right hotel, which my sister's in the hotel business, so yeah. I get a the friends and family discount. And I love <laughs> it when I get. Every now and again, you stumble into one of the baller ones. It's yeah. got like uh, the sauna and the gym area. They're like, oh man, I'm just gonna go down and like sweat sit it in out. Sauna and like an hour later, like, all right, let's go drink again. All the poor bastards that practice yoga, hot yoga with me, like every practice, what's that smell? What are <laughs> right. the, what are the drinks? I've never done. I've done Bikram notably. I've never done Bikram while notably hungover. So that's I, it, I gotta maybe try that or maybe I don't. Uh, what it, is that anal sex rough. smell in here? <laughs> wow. <laughs> He, someone's been drinking Pinotage. <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Jay, Thanks, we'll Jay. definitely, next time you're in town, man, hit us up and love to have you back on. Yeah, for sure. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. For right, we have approximately seven more bottles that we haven't even, like, opened yet. There's so. drinking yet to be done. Yeah, we've got plenty left to do. So until next time, reach out to us uh, at shiftdrinkpodcast.com, and you can find Jay on social media. And we'll be looking forward to your next project. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Cheers. Salud.